You be seated. And if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 in your Bibles. We, we come to another parable in Jesus' teaching as we get back to our study of the gospel according to Luke. And this parable is often regarded as the most difficult to understand. One book on the parables I have by a fellow with a great last name, Snodgrass. He lists 16 different interpretations for the parable that we're about to look at. Now, I would probably never preach on a a passage like this one if I weren't forced to because we were going through the book. Some passages are easy to preach. I like to say some passages fall off the bone. You know, Monday morning, as soon as the preparation really begins for that next Sunday's sermon, the outline is clear. The structure, the flow of thought there is, is clear. You know, it's maybe one of those topics that just preaches well. It just incites joy and, and awe and, and wonder. It's fun to preach, and, and it's fun to preach with gusto because you know there's going to be fireworks in that. It's, it's a needed topic, a, a loved passage. And then some passages are thick and difficult to understand. Some seem less needful for our day-to-day than others. Some seem less practical. Some seem perhaps too doctrinally deep to have to go through and and deal with grammar, to pull out the, the flow of thought here, to trace it down in a long sentence. Boy, it's, it's work sometimes. Some, some passages seem awfully repetitious as you go through a, a book of the Bible. Like in Luke, I've said before, some titles of these messages could be just Miracles and Unbelief, Part 24. Because that's what it is. Again, Jesus doing more miracles, and they still don't get it. You know, how many times have we seen the theme of Jesus showing to be Messiah, proving to be Messiah, and they don't get it? You could say, this week is Jesus as Messiah, part 18 or 54 or something. I mean, there's so many times where it feels repetitious in Luke and in other parts of the Bible, but we've said also before that repetition is important. That's exactly the point. Luke is trying to lay out this thing in a bunch of different stories. So we need to take Luke at its face value. In fact, we need to take the whole Bible at its face value. God gave us the Bible in books, not encyclopedia. You don't look up a topic, you know, sin. And there's every sin story and every sin example and every law there for you to see so you know what sin is. No, you have to go through these stories and and, and through these laws and and through these sections of promise and through these epistles in the New Testament. But they're all given to us in books. And God has purposes for the way it was written and and put together. So that's why we go through books, basically, here at, at Desert Springs on Sunday morning. Sometimes we'll do a few miscellaneous messages or maybe an occasional topical series. You know, maybe it'll be the church, and I'll look at seven different passages uh, over seven weeks on the church. But generally, we go through books of the Bible because God gave books here. And because going through books of the Bible keeps a, a preacher from hobby horses, It makes a preacher deal with passages that he would rather avoid because it's a hard passage or because another one would be fun or get more applause. 
So before we get into this hard passage, let me remind you of 2 Timothy 4, where Paul told Timothy, a pastor, a young pastor, to preach the word in season and out of season. Those are farming terms. In season, when it seems like it will produce and when it seems like it won't. When it seems like it will work, preach the word. When it seems like it won't, preach the word. Paul says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, plural, in accordance to their own desires. In other words, they'll buffet a selection of teachers. This guy on this topic. That guy on that topic. And it turns away from the word. It turns away from truth. And Paul says, turns to myths. Well, Luke 16 is one of those passages that's hard. It's hard to understand, and then once we discover its meaning, we see that it contains a message that's hard to hear. It's a passage, it doesn't tickle ears. Chapter 16 and verse 1. Now Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred, I'm sorry, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous is in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now the Pharisees were lovers of money. We were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Well, this is God's word. What's it about? One thing that's clear is that this is about money, right? Money is, is here in this passage, and no surprise, Jesus told about 40 different parables, and at least a third of them have something to do with money, money and possessions. Any passage that Jesus gives us about money and possessions is hard to hear. This one's hard to understand. It's hard to understand because 
it sounds like a wicked man is commended for extortion. That can't be right. And then it sounds like later on that Jesus is saying we can earn our way to heaven by making friends with our money. That can't be right. If we know anything about the Bible, we know that that just doesn't, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't jive. So let's go through it before you even get to the outline you have in your, in your micro-bulletin. <laughs> At least micro-print. Let me just say it for you before you come and tell me. We know that print is small. Thanks. <laughs> Noted. You'll notice in your micro-bulletin, in the sermon notes there, in the back, that we'll get to that outline in just a bit, but first let's go through the passage and try to understand it before we get to those points. In verse 1, it's a rich man, a very rich man, because he has a business manager, someone to run his business for him. And this boss finds out that his business manager, it says, was squandering his wealth, his money, squandering. The same Greek word used for the prodigal son. He was squandering his inheritance, right? As he went to the faraway city, he squandered it. And we don't know what this manager was doing to squander his boss's money, but whatever it was, and, and however the boss found out, it, it really doesn't matter. He's not managing it well. It's slipping through the cracks, or he's stealing some of it, or he's not collecting it like he should. So the owner confronts the manager in verse 2. He tells him to turn in the account of his records, the account of his management, money management. And that'll be all. He's fired. He just has to turn in the books, you could say. And the manager doesn't even argue the case. He doesn't even plead for mercy. And, and scholars who know first century culture a lot better than you and I do say that this was unheard of and unthinkable for someone to be confronted and to be fired and they didn't defend themselves or even plead for mercy, plead for a second chance. This guy doesn't do either of those, which means that this manager is apparently so guilty he doesn't see the need to defend himself or plead for mercy. He just goes on to another option. But verse 3 tells us he can't work. He can't work manual labor anyway. And he's too proud to beg. What's he going to do? Verse 4, he comes up with a plan. While he still has his boss's accounting records, he's going to go to his boss's debtors. And he's going to say to them, You owe 100 Cut it in half. Make it 50. That's what you owe the boss. You owe 80? I'm sorry, you owe 100 shares of wheat? Measures of wheat? Well, then go ahead and make it 80. And we won't tell the boss. We'll just hand him the book. Now, these debts and these reductions are enormous. 50 measures of oil in verse 6, that's equivalent to about a year and a half's income for the average worker in this day. And then when it talks about 100 measures of wheat in, in verse 7, it's a different percentage. It's 80 out of 100, but it's worth about the same. What was cut is worth about the same. A year and a half of the average worker's income. Put that in Albuquerque terms. Average income here is 35000 uh, So imagine there's a $100,000 debt for someone who makes 35000 a year, and it gets cut in half, 50000 $50,000 cut from debt is a lot of money for someone who makes $35,000. Uh, 
But here's where it gets confusing. It's in verse 8, where the boss hears about all this and commends him for this debt reduction program that he starts. The, the boss says he acted shrewdly in verse 8. Why does he say that? Well, here's where we've got to dig a little bit deeper. There are two possibilities for what happened when this, this worker, this manager, uh, reduced these debts. One is the most obvious, the one you probably already think. He did something sneaky that got him in trouble and got him fired, but as his last act of working for this guy, he did something even more sneaky, more selfish, more heinous, more, more swindling on the boss. But the problem with that, some would say, is that in the parable, the boss commends the manager for doing this. So another interpretation is this. When the manager adjusted these amounts of of debt, he was really trying to reduce what would have come to him. It would have come as part of his cut in what the, the boss made. Maybe even it was his cut out of what he was at one time trying to embezzle. So maybe, maybe the boss sells this amount of wheat for, for 50x, whatever x is, right? Whatever the coin is or whatever the currency is. He, he's selling it for 50x, but this manager goes behind his back, sells it for 100x, and then when that loan comes back, the payment comes in, 50 will go in his own pocket, 50 will go to the boss, no one will know the difference. And maybe that's what got him in trouble in the first place. But if that's the case, why is this guy still being, still being called an unrighteous manager in verse 8? See that? He's an unrighteous manager even after he does this thing. So maybe this isn't some sort of act of um, you know, change, remorse, trying to make amends, finally do the right thing, cut out your embezzlement plan, and just get the guy his money. Well, which one is it? Well, believe it or not, it doesn't matter. How'd you like that little tour of futility? (laughs) The point of the parable is not this guy's moral reform. The point of the parable is his shrewd thinking. To do something now that will pay dividends later. It's about future stuff. It's, it's, It's about doing something wise, even if it's not right. Doing something wise because he's thinking about tomorrow. As one commentator put it, there is all the difference in the world between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. You see, the owner isn't probably commending this guy's dishonesty. Even if he was dishonest and even twice over dishonest, it's not being commended. What's being commended is his shrewdness and his wisdom, even if it's wicked wisdom. You see, Jesus' whole point is that the world is shrewd in their plans for the future. The world knows when to sober up, when to cut bait, when when to get serious about a plan, to, to do something now that doesn't pay off just yet, but will pay off in the future, later on. Jesus is saying, how much more should those, look at verse 8, how much more should those who know about eternity, he's essentially saying. He's saying Christians should use their present resources for a better future. 
Christians should use their lives now for eternal dividends. He's saying Christians should not be those whose mantra is your best life now. Christians should be those who know the best is yet to come. The best life is later by far. This is all over our Bibles, so much so that it's absolutely shocking that people could read the same Bible, even teach from this same Bible, and get it backwards. That the best life is the one to come. We'll see that as we go through this passage and some others. Now, on to the outline in your micro-bulletin. Two sections. One is implications here. The implications of these first nine verses. The first is that all of us are unfaithful stewards. Now, it says manager in my translation. Old King James in verse 1 said, stewards. Steward's a better word because it's probably more descriptive. It's an old word. We don't use it nearly as much as manager. There's some overlap for sure, but steward has a little bit more than just manager because we tend to think McDonald's manager. And steward is something like this. It's one who is entrusted with another's goods to care for, manage, and use them as the owner sees fit. So your money manager or your financial advisor is something of a steward of your money. Your CPA is something of a steward of your taxes. Randy Elkhorn uh, has written a great book. Maybe you've read it, God, Riches, and Possessions. Uh, we have that back at the, the Resource Center. We also have for free a booklet version of uh, Randy Elkhorn's book. Uh, in May of this year, so you can plan ahead, in May of this year, uh, Randy Elkhorn will be with us for our Claris Conference with Wayne Grudem. And uh, he'll be talking a little bit about money. He talks a lot about stewardship in his books, that, that booklet back there with the full-length version of the book also. He, he says this, A steward's primary goal is to be found faithful by his master as the steward uses the master's resources to accomplish the tasks delegated to him. In that sense, every human being is a steward of God's stuff. Adam in the garden was a steward. He was told to cultivate the earth. He was told to fill the earth. He was told to subdue the earth. On God's behalf, he went looking for a mate. God said, categorize these animals and see if any of them are fitting for a mate for you. And he says, no, 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 they're not. But he was categorizing them as he was naming them. He's a steward of God's stuff, his creation. That stewardship concept is sometimes used in the Bible uh, in describing parents that they are stewards of children? Not so much. Even though it says children are a gift from God, it's not so much exactly that they are gifts from God as much as they are God's. They're given to us with an assignment to be raised by his, by his standards and for him. Kids are his, not just mom, not just dad's. And everything we have is from God. Everything we have is for God. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him everything comes. Through him everything sustained. To him everything goes. For him everything exists. 
We're all stewards, but none of us are faithful stewards. And this is one way of defining sin. That sin isn't a total deserting of God's creation or God's plan or God's stuff. It's instead a stealing of God's stuff. It's a hijacking of his stuff. It's a twisting of it. And it it has a, a rebound effect back toward us instead of directly toward him. It's the nature of sin. Sin is, you could say, the opposite of stewardship. But in Christ... Christians, now forgiven of that, aren't just forgiven of that, but they're called back to and restored back to stewardship. So let me mention it a couple times here in in the New Testament, such as in 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says that we're stewards of the mysteries of God. We're stewards, stewards of information, stewards of truth. And it's required that stewards be found faithful, he says. In 1 Peter 4, Peter says that as each one of us has received a ministry gift for some that's serving, as each one receives that gift, it's not really a gift. He says we should employ it serving others as stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whatever gift I have to the church, whatever gift you have to serve the church, to minister, to teach, to love, to lead, it's a gift For the church, which means it's not a gift that ends with you. It's an assignment. It's a stewardship. It's God's way of blessing others. He just chooses to do it through people. That's stewardship. So the picture is not that some things are ours and some things are God's. Some things are secular and some things are spiritual. It's not that everything comes from God but we're supposed to give some back. That's not the biblical picture. You may think that. You may think that with your giving. You know, where it's sort of like a nice thank you gesture back to God. You've given me so much, the least I can do is send you a 10% thank you, 5% thank you, 15% thank you, whatever. A thank you. It's not a thank you. That is administering his money. It's administrating his stuff. And of course, part of it has to go to kingdom work, has to go to eternal things, not just physical things. So whether it's children or stewarding God's creation, yes, that that may have ecological consequences for us and how we think about the earth. Or, Or stewarding God's time. It's not my time and his time. It's all his time. Just a matter of whether it's thoughtfully on him and for him or not. Or whether it's stewarding money. That's what this passage really does focus on, isn't it? It focuses on money. You see that in the parable, of course. And then that's what Jesus is talking about in those verses that follow, verses 10 to 14. But before we move on, let's note this. This is sneaky stuff. This means that you can follow all the societal rules. For what's right, and what you do, what you give to, and how you live, you can even follow all of the church's rules for how to live and what's important and what to give and what and how to live. But we could still fall way short with God because we didn't do it for Him, because of what we 
did do, we thought it was somehow, somehow repayment. And we protected the other stuff, the rest that we thought was ours, given to us from him, sure, but, but ours now, and we grab it, and we hold it, and we won't let go, and we say, how dare you take this? This was mine. Sometimes we say to God, how dare you take this? This was mine. I earned this. In our best of moments, we know that, no, you didn't earn it. It's a gift. But in your best of best of moments, you know it's not a gift. It's not a gift at all. It's an assignment. So it's sneaky. And I know this in my own heart better than I know anyone else's heart on this front, that we do this insidious thing of taking the master's stuff, thinking we use it however we want, or just enjoying it thoughtlessly, What we do sometimes is we steal from the master. We hijack his stuff because we think he doesn't see or because we think it doesn't matter or because we think he won't do anything about it. Which leads to the second thing. The boss will come accounting. Our boss, God, the creator, knows our practices. And just like this boss in the story, this owner, he found out about what was going on with this manager. Maybe someone had to tell him. Maybe he didn't find out for a while. Not so with our creator. He sees it all. Yes, I know he's patient, but that patience doesn't mean he won't come accounting. He will come accounting. You you know in your soul, don't you, even if you're not a Christian, that there must be some sort of accounting at the end. Are you okay with a worldview that says Hitler's go free? Stalin's never will pay. Or is there something in you that cries foul and says, no, justice is needed. If not in this life, hopefully in the next. Okay, then there must be an accounting. And you just think the really bad people get it. But we're all sinners. We all have been unfaithful stewards. God is patient, yes, but he's not dumb, he's not absent. Just like this guy's boss, and better than this guy's boss, there will be an accounting with our creator. And third, time is short. The time is short, just like it was for this manager. He had a short time between the boss's confrontation and having to hand over the accounting book. Now, if he gives the accounting book back without first doing this little this little trick with the debtors and and rewriting their debts, he misses this opportunity to make a name for himself in the community, to save face with himself, for himself in the community. There's a short time. And before he hands over those accounting books, he he does what he thinks is wise. We know morally it's not wise. But he has a short time and he can either do nothing or he can do the wrong thing or he can do the best thing. And again, he doesn't do the best thing morally, but as far as the human world goes, as far as horizontal standards go, this was pretty good. Even the owner has to say, you got me. That was shrewd. That was tricky. That was pretty smart. The time is short. We don't know how long. We don't know how long we have. We could die. We could die now, tomorrow. James 4 tells us our life is a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Vapor. Why do you say vapor? 
you know, vapors are fragile, right? You can push them out of the way. I mean, you can chop them in half with your hand without even feeling it. It's a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. They're short-lived. Life is like that. Or Jesus could return soon. We don't know when. In the first century, it was said that Jesus could return soon. We don't know how soon, but it could be soon. There could be just a short time before the Creator comes accounting. Fourth, be future-minded then. Be present, I'm sorry, be future-minded as opposed to present-minded. Now, all of us have to be present-minded in, in some way, right? This doesn't mean live in the future. We have to function as present people. But what drives what we do, the present or the future? In some ways, even the world knows future is important. That's what this whole parable is about. The world knows investments are needed. The world knows enough what Proverbs says, that you have to invest now for that time when you don't have ants store up. But there's something more going on here. There's something going on here where we can't just think about that kind of future. But we need to think eternally and heavenly. That means here that future-mindedness doesn't mean just planning for retirement. The world can look at the future and say, it's wise to save for the future. It's wise to plan for the, for the dark years or the gray years or whatever you want to call those old years. But the future-mindedness God calls us to here in this passage is eternal-mindedness, heavenly-mindedness, like Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. You, you probably know these words. You know, maybe not... Maybe they have them memorized, but you've heard these. Where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's some kind of spiritual treasuring, heavenly treasures accumulated as we serve him, as we see his kingdom expand before our very eyes and sometimes through our very hands. Be that kind of future-minded. Fifth, be shrewd. Be shrewd. That's what is really the key here in verse 8. He's called shrewd. He acted shrewdly. Be wise about this whole thing. Be clever about this whole thing, this eternal, heavenly investment plan. Eternal dividends require strategy and thought. Not carelessness, not merely habit. Are you perhaps riding on the discipline, thought, and prayer of yesteryear's planning and budget? What I mean is, you got your giving set, you got your priority set, you know what's optional, what isn't optional. You've studied it, you read a couple of books on it. You went to Larry Burkett's seminar, and so you got it in place now. And so you're on cruise control. Isn't this passage at least describing something about not being reckless, but being radical? Being goal-focused, yes, but being stringently so. Being strategic, but, but not stayed, not fixed. And keep reevaluating, keep thinking, keep wondering, keep testing 
keep thinking about this, that everything is either a potential tool for his kingdom or an idol. Okay, not everything. Because some things can't be a tool for God, right? Something is so explicitly wicked that you couldn't say, well, I'm using my adultery for his glory. It wouldn't work, right? Some things don't work as tools, but almost everything else in your life can go either way. And motive is usually the difference. Is it a tool? Or is it an idol? Everything in your house should be seen as either a tool or an idol. Tool doesn't mean you always have to sell it, but use it. It's a perspective. That's what it says here in verse 9. Use unrighteous wealth, not abandon unrighteous wealth. Ignore unrighteous wealth. Make sure you lose it. Let it fly out of your pockets. Whoever gets it, who cares? No, be shrewd. Use even unrighteous wealth. Wealth in and of itself isn't righteous. It's not in and of itself evil either. But whatever it is, it's a potential tool or it's a potential idol. Use it. It means everything is either a means to see God and to show God to others, or it's a means of replacing God. It's that serious. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. You can hardly preach a message on money and not reference 1 Timothy 6, which has several verses on money. And it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world, which, by the way, is everyone in this room. Maybe there are a couple exceptions of those who would be what's below a global poverty line. But almost everyone in here, probably everyone in here, is above a global poverty line. So we're rich in this present world. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, and he says two things. One, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but instead to fix their hope on God. And secondly, to be rich in good works. Rich in this world, though they may be, they're rich in their good works. The riches of this world are merely a means or a tool of being rich in God and generous and ready to share. That's one way, in case you think rich in good works just sounds so empty or ethereal and undefined. Who knows what that really means? He says, be generous. Use your money ready to share. Now, that means that some Christians spend like there's no kingdom. But it's also true, some Christians save like there's no God. I've said before, in our study of Luke, as we've talked about other money passages, I've said, look, I'm saving for retirement. I think retirement's bad. It's practical. At some point, you're not going to make what you probably are making now. At some point, I'll be 83, and you don't want a crusty 83-year-old preacher anymore, so I'll clean toilets or do what I can around here, but you probably won't pay me the same. I'm okay with that. So I sock a little away. But there's a way to sock away that's wise, and there's a way to sock away that's idolatry. Even though it looks wise, even though it looks conservative, even though it looks disciplined, it may actually be a means of replacing God because you're fearful and you trust yourself more than you trust 
him. There's one more thing in this section here. Sixth, be generous. Now, the man in the parable is selfish, of course, in his plans and his actions. That's not what Jesus is comparing to the Christian life. But there is a hint in the passage that we're to be generous and we're to be others-minded. Verse 9, one of the most confusing verses here. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you. Notice when it fails, by the way. When it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. What does this mean? Well, like the manager who used his owner's money, his owner's credit, to win friends and be welcomed by them, probably so that he could get a job with one of these people he cut the deal with. Not so that he could live in their house. It says, so they'll welcome me into their home. That probably means welcome me into their home as their household business manager. Just as he would use his owner's money to win friends and be welcomed by them, so we are to use our master's money to win friends spiritually and eternally speaking. We call that evangelism. We call that friendship happening, ultimately we call it conversion. You might be a friend to your unsafe, you know, you might be a friend to your unsafe neighbor or, or co-worker, but there's a friendship there that happens in Christ that's unparalleled. And we're to use the master's money to win those kind of friends that they might one day welcome us into the eternal dwellings of our heavenly home. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Alka Indians in Ecuador in the 1950s. As you probably know, he was killed by the tribe that he was going to at the age of 29. And you probably know that before he left at Wheaton College, he wrote in his journal these words, which he probably got from a Puritan. Almost all good things come from the Puritans. <laughs> he is no fool, Eliot wrote, who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Fitting for this passage. And you may have heard that quote before, but maybe you didn't know that the next line in his journal was quoting Luke 16.9. This weird verse. Not weird to him, because he got it. He didn't make friends with those Alka Indians in this life. But if you know the rest of the story, you've read through the gates of splendor, or you've seen the movie End of the Spear, you know these tribes came to faith. Most of them came to believe, trusted Christ. Ironically, Jim Elliot will be there to welcome them into their eternal dwellings. Well, that's the first section in your notes, and let's get to the second section, but don't worry, it'll be quick. We need to go through some rationales, we could call them, of the parable. Those quick concluding points that follow the parable that Jesus gives in verses 10 to 15. There are five of them. First, faithfulness with little results in much. Verse 10, he says, he who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. You might think that you would do great things for God if he would bless you with this this big sum. If you ask my wife this question, you know, if this is a dating game, can we get the same answer? Of course, she's hearing this, so she knows, but 
Let's imagine she's not. You ask her this question, I think we'd get this right. If you said, what does Ryan say he would want to do if he got millions of dollars? And I always say, start a seminary. Right here in Albuquerque, connected with our church. It takes millions of dollars to start a seminary. We don't have a a great seminary that I know of here in town. A lot of our staff guys do seminary through correspondence to other better schools, um, but it it lacks something of the connection of face-to-face professors. And I always say, if I had millions of dollars, I'd buy that building and that'd be our seminary. And then I pat myself on the back and say, when I dream about millions, I dream about millions for God, for the kingdom. Yeah. Do you sometimes say, Lord, if you would give me $2 million, man, I would do great things for you with one million of it. But what are you going to do with what you have? What are you going to do with the little? What are you going to do with the 10 bucks in your wallet right now? How do you view that? How do you view little? See, the indicator of heart here in this passage is not in the hypothetical of what we would do, even when we know it will never happen. And it's not in the actual happening of when there's much. This passage says that there is something of a a test in what we do with the little. Something of a heart indicator in what we do with the little. So some of you have little right now. Some of you have more little than you've ever had in your life. I I know. I'm sorry. I'm not minimizing how hard that is. But at least be encouraged with this. You do, you do God's stuff with little. We all do it with little. None of us should be waiting for much. So with little, you have a great opportunity to do much. The result isn't much now, but it's much in heaven, even when we do it with little. And so this is a reminder to you, you who are out of work, you who've been, your pay's been cut in half, the business might go under. I know so many families like that, and I pray for you by name as I hear that often. This is a test. Little is a test, as much as or even more than much. So the question is not, what would you give when you have more, but what are you giving? What are you doing? How do you see money now? You can idolize money when you're rich, and you can idolize money when you're broke. Secondly, faithfulness in the temporary results in the eternal. We see this in verse 11. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? True riches, spiritual riches. These are temporary riches that we have right now, and they're means to an end. A means to the end of buying food, yeah. A means to an end of having some comfort, sure. We're not stoics. We don't believe in asceticism. We don't believe that there's some sort of virtue in pain by itself. But let's look at how 
temporary money is. Ponder it, remember it, keep telling ourselves. Remember that verse 9 says, when it fails, not if it fails, but when it fails. Let's remember how fleeting the pleasures of this life are. Let's remember how, how our money has wings. It flies away. Thankfully, the economic downturn in the world and in our country has at least got the attention of the Christians who thought it was just a given. You can put it away and you can get 10% a year. It's a given. No. It's money. By nature it has wings. By nature it goes away. It too is like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. Third, Jesus talks about faithfulness with another's resulting in our own. In verse 12, he says, If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You'd think he'd say the opposite. You'd think he'd say, Be good with what's your own, and then you'll get another's. He doesn't say that. He says, Be good in the use of another's stewardship. Be good in the use of what's God's. And then it will be your own. What will be our own? Everything. Everything. That's not an exaggeration, biblically speaking. We are heirs with Christ. What does Christ inherit? Everything. He's the Son. If we're in Christ, we inherit everything. It's ours. Because we're in the family. Not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, but because of who we are in Christ. Like the prodigal son who comes home and deserves nothing of the father's favor, let alone restoration to the family. And the father gives him every privilege back into the family, every honor, every bit of celebration. Faithfulness with another's results in one day it being our own. Just wait. Friend, just wait. Being impatient. I say this to myself. Quit being impatient. Wait. The best is yet to come. Fourth, you can't serve two masters. In verse 13, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other. He'll either be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Notice it says serve money. It doesn't feel like you serve money, but serving money is sneaky. If money is a potential idol, that when it's an idol, it feels like it's doing something for us. But really, we serve it. We serve it. The Bible talks about idols being served by people. They really serve idols instead of the idol serving them. And so here's the question. Do we serve money or do we serve God? Are we served by God to use money. I know it seems like you can serve money and serve God as long as the balance is healthy, as long as no one's rocking the boat, as long as no one is getting in your face about it. But just in principle, no. Jesus tells us differently here that we have to believe and trust and heed that even when the world tells us we can serve money and we can serve God, Jesus says we can't. He says we can't. God and money can go in the same sentence together. But it's either going to go like this. 
either money in service to God and his kingdom or God in service to my money and my kingdom. Now, before we go any further, we wrap this up, but notice that in this passage and in other passages like 1 Timothy 6, we don't have specifics. It'd be nice to have specifics, wouldn't it? You want to know if you need reformation in your home, your budget, your priorities, your goals, your time, your stewardship. You want to just take the test. And for it to be a green light or a red light, you want to know how much is too much. You want to know how much stuff is too much stuff. How much giving is enough giving. No, the Bible doesn't give us tests and rules like that. Because God has purposes for us working these things out with Bible and conscience and prayer. And the Bible tells us that we're going to keep working this out. If we had the principle, we wouldn't keep working it out. But by faith, we keep reevaluating and rethinking and retesting because it's a hard issue. It isn't ultimately a budget issue, which doesn't get your budget off the hook. It just means you need to go looking for the root of your budget. It's a hard issue. And he has purposes for us doing hard work as our hearts are reflected in how we use money. The goal is that we view our money and possessions as serving God and others in kingdom, not ultimately in serving self, not ultimately in being served, rather in serving the money. And one last point here in verse 15, you can't justify yourself. In verse 14, Jesus calls on the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And then in 15, he says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. And that's the root of the problem. That's the root of their money love. The root of their money love is that they, they justify self. We can't justify self, not, not truly. We're justified by God in Christ through his blood and righteousness alone, where he died the death that we deserved to give us the righteousness that we couldn't earn, to stand in the place of judgment for us, to give us the gift of grace and reconciliation to the God who made us. The parable of the unrighteous manager here doesn't at all tell us that we can earn our way to heaven by, by being sacrificial, by being ascetic, by, by sacrificing much to those who are, are poor, and we can get in with God with our money. No. Jesus is talking to his disciples here in verse 1. Disciples who presumably know the gospel and know where the forgiveness lies. And having been forgiven now and put on his kingdom work, how's it going to look? It's going to look like there's an eternity to come. It's going to look like this isn't it. It's going to look like this world is a broken world. And so we're not trying to sap every little bit of juice from this world because nothing's to come. No, what we're sacrificing now, sometimes radically suffering, sometimes radically giving. Not to earn his favor, not just to do what's right, but because this isn't it. The best is yet to come.